Chapter Three of Tales of the Five Towns. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Martin Clifton. Tales of the Five Towns by Arnold Bennett. Chapter Three. Mary with the High Hand. In the front bedroom of Edward Beechinor's small house in Trafalgar Road, the two primary social forces of action and reaction. Those forces which, under a thousand names and disguises, have alternately ruled the world since the invention of politics, were pitted against each other in a struggle rendered futile by the equality of the combatants. Edward Beechinor had his money, his superior age, and the possible advantage of being a dying man. Mark Beechinor had his youth and his devotion to an ideal. Near the window, aloof and apart. Stood the strange, silent girl whose aroused individuality was to intervene with such effectiveness on behalf of one of the antagonists. It was early dusk on an autumn day. Tell me what it is you want, Edward," said Mark quietly. "Let us come to the point." "I," said the sufferer, lifting his pale hand from the counterpane. "I'll tell thee." He moistened his lips as if in preparation. And pushed back a tuft of sparse grey hair, damp with sweat. The physical and moral contrast between these two brothers was complete. Edward was forty-nine, a small, thin, stunted man, with a look of narrow cunning, of petty shrewdness, working without imagination. He had been clerk to lawyer Ford for thirty-five years, and had also furtively practised for himself. During this period, his mode of life had never varied, save once, and that only a year ago. At the age of fourteen, he sat in a grimy room with an old man on one side of him, a copying press on the other, and a law stationer's almanac in front, and he earned half a crown a week. At the age of forty-eight, he still sat in the same grimy room, of which the ceiling had meanwhile been whitened three times. With the same copying press and the almanac of the same law stationers, and he earned thirty shillings a week. But now he, Edward Beechinor, was the old man, and the indispensable lad of fourteen, who had once been himself, was another lad, perhaps thirtieth of the dynasty of office boys. Throughout this interminable and sterile desert of time, he had drawn the same deeds, issued the same writs. Written the same letters and kept the same accounts, lied the same lies and thought the same thoughts. He had learnt nothing except craft and forgotten nothing except happiness. He had never married, never loved, never been a rake nor deviated from respectability. He was a success because he had conceived an object and, by sheer persistence, attained it. In the eyes of Bursley people, he was a very decent fellow, a steady fellow, a confirmed bachelor, a closen, a knowing customer, a curmudgeon, an excellent clerk, a narrow-minded ass, a good Wesleyan, a thrifty individual, and an intelligent burgess, according to the point of view. The lifelong operation of rigorous habit had sunk him into a groove as deep as the canon of some American river. His ideas on every subject were eternally and immutably fixed, and without being altogether aware of it, he was part of the solid foundation of England's greatness. 
1892, when the whole of the five towns was agitated by the great probate case of Wilbraham v. Wilbraham, in which Mr. Ford acted for the defendants, Beechinor, then aged forty-eight, was torn from his stool and sent out to Rio de Janeiro as part of a commission to take the evidence of an important witness who had declined all offers to come home. The old clerk was full of pride and self-importance at being thus selected, but secretly he shrank from the journey, the mere idea of which filled him with vague apprehension and alarm. His nature had lost all its adaptability. He trembled like a young girl at the prospect of new experiences. On the return voyage the vessel was quarantined at Liverpool for a fortnight, and Beechinor had an attack of low fever. Eight months afterwards he was ill again. Beechinor went to bed for the last time, cursing Providence, Wilbraham v. Wilbraham, and Rio. Mark Beechinor was thirty, just nineteen years younger than his brother. Tall, uncouth, big-boned, he had a rather ferocious and forbidding aspect. Yet all women seemed to like him, despite the fact that he seldom could open his mouth to them. There must have been something in his wild and liquid dark eyes which mutely appealed for their protective sympathy. Something about him of shy and wistful romance that atoned for the huge awkwardness of this taciturn elephant. Mark was at present the manager of a small china manufactory at Longshaw, the farthest of the five towns in Staffordshire and five miles from Bursley. He was an exceptionally clever potter, but he never made any money. He had the dreamy temperament of the inventor. He was a man of ideas, the kind of man who is capable of forgetting that he has not had his dinner, and who can live apparently content amid the grossest domestic neglect. He had once spoilt a hundred and fifty pounds worth of ware by firing it in a new kiln of his own contrivance. It cost him three years of atrocious parsimony to pay for the ware and the building of the kiln. He was impulsively and recklessly charitable, and his Saturday afternoons and Sundays were chiefly devoted to the passionate propagandism of the theories of liberty, equality and fraternity. "'Is it true that thou art for marrying Sammy Mellor's daughter over at Hanbridge?' Edward Beechinor asked in the feeble, tremulous voice of one agonised by continual pain. Among relatives and acquaintances he commonly spoke the Five Towns dialect, reserving the other English for official use. Mark stood at the foot of the bed, leaning with his elbows on the brass rail. Like most men, he always felt extremely nervous and foolish in a sick-room, and the delicacy of this question, so bluntly put, added to his embarrassment. He looked round timidly in the direction of the girl at the window. Her back was towards him. "'It's possible,' he replied. "'I haven't asked her yet.' "'I'll have no money.' "'No. Thou want some brass to set up with. "'Look thee here, Mark. I made my will seven years ago in thy favour. "'Thank ye,' said Mark gratefully. "'But that,' the dying man continued with a frown, "'that was a fore that's taken up with these socialistic doctrines of thine. "'I've heard as thou'rt going to be the secretary of the Hanbridge Labour Church, as they call it. "'Hanbridge is the metropolis of the five towns, "'and its Labour Church is the most audacious and influential of all the local activities, "'half-secret but relentlessly determined, "'whose aim is to establish the new democratic heaven,' 
and the new democratic earth by means of a gradual and bloodless revolution. Edward Beechinor uttered its abhorred name with a bitter and scornful hatred, characteristic of the Toryism of a man who, having climbed high up out of the crowd, fiercely resents any widening or smoothing of the difficult path which he himself has conquered. "'They've asked me to take the post,' Mark answered. "'What's the wages?' the older man asked, with exasperated sarcasm. "'Nothing.' "'Mark, lad,' the other said, softening, "'I'm worth seven hundred pounds in this freehold house. What dost think of that?' Even in that moment, with the world and its riches slipping away from his dying grasp, the contemplation of this great achievement of thrift filled Edward Beechinor with a sublime satisfaction. That sum of seven hundred pounds, which many men would dissipate in a single night and forget the next morning that they had done so, seemed vast and almost incredible to him. "'I know you've always been very careful,' said Mark politely. "'Give up this old labour church,' again old Beechinor laid a withering emphasis on the phrase. "'Give up this labour church, and it's all thine, house and all.' Mark shook his head. "'Think twice,' the sick man ordered angrily. "'I tell thee that, standing to lose every shilling, I must manage without it, then.' A silence fell. Each brother was absolutely immovable in his decision and the other knew it. Edward might have said, I am a dying man, give up this thing to oblige me, and Mark could have pleaded, At such a moment I would do anything to oblige you, except this, and this I really can't do. Forgive me. Such amenities would possibly have eased the cord which was about to snap. But the idea of regarding Edward's condition as a factor in the case did not suggest itself favourably to the grim beechin or stock so stern, harsh, and rude. The sick man wiped from his sunken features the sweat which continually gathered there. Then he turned upon his side with a grunt. "'Thou must fetch the lawyer,' he said at length, "'for I'll cut thee off.' It was a strange request, like ordering a condemned man to go out and search for his executioner. But Mark answered with perfect naturalness, "'Yes, Mr. Ford, I suppose.' Ford, no, dost think I want him meddling in my affairs? Go to young Baines up the road. Tell him to come at once. He's sure to be at home as it's Saturday night. Very well. Mark turned to leave the room. And, young'un, I've done with thee. Never pass my door again till thou know'st I'm in my coffin. Understand? Mark hesitated a moment, and then went out, quietly closing the door. No sooner had he done so than the girl, hitherto so passive at the window, flew after him. There are some women whose calm, enigmatic faces seem always to suggest the infinite. It is given to few to know them, so rare as they are, and their lives usually so withdrawn. But sometimes they pass in the street, or sit like sphinxes in the church or the theatre, and then the memory of their features, persistently recurring, troubles us for days. They are peculiar to no class, these women. You may find them in a print gown or in diamonds. Often they have thin, rather long lips and deep, rounded chins, but it is the fine upward curve of the nostrils and the fall of the eyelids which most surely mark them. Their glances and their faint smiles are beneficent, yet with a subtle shade of half-malicious superiority. 
when they look at you from under those apparently fatigued eyelids, you feel that they have an inward and concealed existence far beyond the ordinary, that they are aware of many things which you can never know. It is as though their souls during former incarnations had trafficked with the secret forces of nature, and so acquired a mysterious and nameless quality above all the transient attributes of beauty, wit, and talent. They exist. That is enough. That is their genius. Whether they control or are at the mercy of those secret forces, whether they have in fact learnt, but may not speak, the true answer to the eternal why, whether they are not perhaps a riddle even to their own simple selves, these are points which can never be decided. Everyone who knew Mary Beechinor in her cousin's home or at chapel, or on Titus Price's earthenware manufactory where she worked, said or thought that there was something about her, and left the phrase unachieved. She was twenty-five, and she had lived under the same roof with Edward Beechinor for seven years, since the sudden death of her parents. The arrangement then made was that Edward should keep her while she conducted his household. She had insisted on permission to follow her own occupation, and, in order that she might be at liberty to do so, she personally paid eighteen pence a week to a little girl who came in to perform sundry necessary duties every day at noon. Mary Beechinor was a paintress by trade. As a class, the paintresses of the five towns are somewhat similar to the more famous mill-girls of Lancashire and Yorkshire. Fiercely independent by reason of good wages earned, loving finery and brilliant colours, loud-tongued and aggressive perhaps, and for the rest neither more nor less kindly, passionate, faithful than any other Saxon women anywhere. The paintresses, however, have some slight advantage over the mill-girls in the outward reticences of demeanour, due no doubt to the fact that their ancient craft demands a higher skill and is pursued under more humane and tranquil conditions. Mary Beechinor worked in the band and line department of the painting shop at Price's. You may have observed the geometrical exactitude of the broad and thin coloured lines round the edges of a common cup and saucer, and speculated upon the means by which it was arrived at. A girl drew those lines, a girl with a hand as sure as Giotto's, and no better tools than a couple of brushes and a small revolving table called a whirler. Forty-eight hours a week Mary Beechinor sat before her whirler. Actuating the treadle, she placed a piece of ware on the flying disc, and with a single unerring flip of her finger pushed it precisely to the centre. Then she held the full brush firmly against the ware, and in three seconds the band encircled it truly. Another brush taken up, and the line below the band also stood complete. And this process was repeated with miraculous swiftness, hour after hour, week after week, year after year. Mary could decorate over thirty dozen cups and saucers in a day, at three halfpence the dozen. Doesn't she ever do anything else, some visitor might curiously inquire, whom Titus Price was showing over his ramshackle manufactory? No, always the same thing, Titus would answer, made proud for the moment of this phenomenon of stupendous monotony. I wonder how she can stand it. She has a refined face, the visitor might remark. And Mary Beechinor was left alone again. 
The idea that her work was monotonous probably never occurred to the girl. It was her work, as natural as sleep, or the knitting which she always did in the dinner hour. The calm and silent regularity of it had become part of her, deepening her original quiescence and setting its seal upon her inmost spirit. She was not in the fellowship of the other girls in the painting shop. She seldom joined their more boisterous diversions, nor talked their talk, and she never manoeuvred for their men. But they liked her, and their attitude showed a certain respect, forced from them by they knew not what. The powers in the office spoke of Mary Beechinor as a very superior girl. She ran downstairs after Mark, and he waited in the narrow hall where there was scarcely room for two people to pass. Mark looked at her inquiringly. Rather thin and by no means tall, she seemed the merest morsel by his side. She was wearing her second-best crimson merino frock, partly to receive the doctor and partly because it was Saturday night. Over this a plain bibless apron. Her cold grey eyes faintly sparkled in anger above the cheeks white with watching, and the dropped corners of her mouth showed a contemptuous indignation. Mary Beechnell was ominously roused from the accustomed calm of years. Yet Mark at first had no suspicion that she was disturbed. To him that pale and inviolate face, even while it cast a spell over him, gave no sign of the fires within. She took him by the coat-sleeve and silently directed him into the gloomy little parlour, crowded with mahogany and horsehair furniture, white antimacassars, wax flowers under glass, and ponderous gilt-clasped Bibles. "'It's a cruel shame,' she whispered, as though afraid of being overheard by the dying man upstairs. "'Do you think I ought to have given way?' he questioned, reddening. "'You mistake me,' she said quickly, and with a sudden movement she went up to him and put her hand on his shoulder. The caress, so innocent, unpremeditated, and instinctive, ran through him like a voltaic shock. These two were almost strangers. They had scarcely met till within the past week, Mark being seldom in Bursley. You mistake me. It is a shame of him. I'm fearfully angry. Angry? he repeated, astonished. Yes, angry, she walked to the window, and twitching at the blind cord, gazed into the dim street. It was beginning to grow dark. Shall you fetch the lawyer? I shouldn't if I were you. I won't. I must fetch him, Mark said. She turned around and admired him. What will he do with his precious money, she murmured. Leave it to you, probably. Not he. I wouldn't touch it, not now. It's yours by rights. Perhaps you don't know that when I came here it was distinctly understood I wasn't to expect anything under his will. Besides, I have my own money. Oh, dear, if he wasn't in such pain, wouldn't I talk to him for the first and last time in my life? You must please not say a word to him. I don't really want the money. But you ought to have it. If he takes it away from you, he's unjust. What did the doctor say this afternoon? asked Mark, wishing to change the subject. He said the crisis would come on Monday, and when it did, Edward would be dead all in a minute. He said it would be just like taking prussic acid. Not earlier than Monday? He said he thought Monday. Of course I shall take no notice of what Edward said to me. I shall call tomorrow morning and stay. 
Perhaps he won't mind seeing me, and then you can tell me what happens tonight. I'm sure I shall send that lawyer man about his business, she threatened. Look here, said Mark timorously as he was leaving the house. I've told you, I don't want the money. I would give it away to some charity. But do you think I ought to pretend to yield, just to humour him, and let him die quiet and peaceful? I shouldn't like him to die hating. Never, never, she exclaimed. What have you and Mark been talking about? asked Edward Beechinor apprehensively as Mary re-entered the bedroom. Nothing, she replied with a grave and soothing kindliness of tone. Because, miss, if you think— You must have your medicine now, Edward. But before giving the patient his medicine, she peeped through the curtain and watched Mark's figure till it disappeared up the hill towards Bleakridge. He, on his part, walked with her image always in front of him. He thought hers was the strongest, most righteous soul he had ever encountered. It seemed as if she had a perfect passion for truth and justice. And a week ago he had deemed her a capable girl, certainly, but lackadaisical. The clock had struck ten before Mr. Baines, the solicitor, knocked at the door. Mary hesitated, and then took him upstairs in silence, while he suavely explained to her why he had been unable to come earlier. This lawyer was a young Scotsman who had descended upon the town from nowhere, bought a small decayed practice, and within two years had transformed it into a large and flourishing business by one of those feats of energy, audacity and tact combined, of which some Scotsmen seemed to possess the secret. "'Here is Mr. Baines, Edward,' Mary said quietly, and then, having rearranged the sick man's pillow, she vanished out of the room and went into the kitchen." The gas-jet there showed only a point of blue, but she did not turn it up. Dragging an old oak rush-seated rocking-chair near to the range, where a scrap of fire still glowed, she rocked herself gently in the darkness. After about half an hour, Mr. Baines's voice sounded at the head of the stairs. "'Miss Beechinor, will you kindly step up? We shall want some assistance.' She obeyed, but not instantly. In the bedroom, Mr. Baines, a fountain-pen between his fine white teeth, was putting some coal on the fire. He stood up as she entered. "'Mr. Beechinor is about to make a new will,' he said, without removing the pen from his mouth, "'and you will kindly witness it.' The small room appeared to be full of Baines. He was so large and fleshy and assertive. The furniture, even the chest of drawers, was dwarfed into toy furniture, and Beechinor, slight and shrunken up, seemed like a cadaverous mannequin in the bed. Now, Mr. Beechinor, dusting his hands, the lawyer took a newly written document from the dressing-table, and spreading it on the lid of a cardboard box, held it before the dying man. Here's the pen. There, I'll help you to hold it. Beechinor clutched the pen. His wrinkled and yellow face, flushed in irregular patches as though the cheeks had been badly rouged, was covered with perspiration, and each difficult movement, even to the slightest lifting of the head, showed extreme exhaustion. He cast at Mary a long, sinister glance of mistrust and apprehension. "'What is there in this will?' Mr. Baines looked sharply up at the girl, who now stood at the side of the bed opposite him. Mechanically, she smoothed the tumbled bedclothes. "'That's nought to do with thee, lass,' said Beechinor resentfully. 
"'It isn't necessary that a witness to a will should be aware of its contents,' said Baines. "'In fact, it's quite unusual.' "'I sign nothing in the dark,' she said, smiling. Through their half-closed lids her eyes glimmered at Baines. "'Ha! Legal caution acquired from your cousin, I presume?' Baines smiled at her. "'But let me assure you, Miss Beechner, this is a mere matter of form. A will must be signed in the presence of two witnesses, both present at the same time, and there is only yourself and me for it.' Mary looked at the dying man, whose features were writhed in pain, and shook her head. "'Tell her,' he murmured with bitter despair, and sank down into the pillows, dropping the fountain-pen which had left a stain of ink on the sheet before Baines could pick it up. "'Well, then, Miss Beechner, if you must know,' Baines began with sarcasm, "'the will is as follows. The testator, that's Mr. Beechner, lives twenty guineas to his brother Mark to show that he bears him no ill-will and forgives him.' The rest of his estate is to be realised, and the proceeds given to the North Staffordshire Infirmary to found a bed, which is to be called the Beechinor Bed. If there is any surplus, it is to go to the law clerk's provident society. That is all. I shall have nothing to do with it, Mary said coldly. Young lady, we don't want ye to have anything to do with it. We only desire ye to witness the signature. I won't witness the signature, and I won't see it signed. "'Damn thee, Mary, thou art a wicked wench,' Beechinor whispered in hoarse, feeble tones. He saw himself robbed of the legitimate fruit of all those interminable years of toilsome thrift. This girl, by a trick, would prevent him from disposing of his own. He, Edward Beechinor, shrewd and wealthy, was being treated like a child. He was too weak to rave, but from his aggrieved and furious heart he piled silent curses on her. "'Go fetch another witness,' he added to the lawyer. "'Wait a moment,' said Baines. "'Miss Beechinor, do you mean to say that ye will cross the solemn wish of a dying man?' "'I mean to say I won't help a dying man to commit a crime.' "'A crime?' "'Yes,' she answered, "'a crime.' Seven years ago, Mr. Beechinor willed everything to his brother Mark, and Mark ought to have everything. Mark is his only brother, his only relation except me, and Edward knows it isn't me wants any of his money. North Staffordshire Infirmary, indeed. It's a crime. What business have you, she went on to Edward Beechinor, to punish Mark just because his politics aren't... That's beside the point, the lawyer interrupted. A testator has a perfect right to leave his property as he chooses, without giving reasons. Now, Miss Beechinor, I must ask ye to be judicious. Mary shut her lips. I'll never do it, I tell thee. Fetch another witness. The old man sprang up in a sort of frenzy as he uttered the words, and then fell back in a brief swoon. Mary wiped his brow and pushed away the wet and matted hair. Presently he opened his eyes, moaning. Mr. Baines folded up the will, put it in his pocket, and left the room with quick steps. Mary heard him open the front door and then return to the foot of the stairs. "'Miss Beechinor,' he called. "'I'll speak with you a moment.' She went down. "'Do you mind coming into the kitchen?' she said, preceding him and turning up the gas. There's no light in the front room. He leaned up against the high mantelpiece, his frock coat hung to the level of the oven knob, 
She had one hand on the white deal table. Between them a tortoiseshell cat purred on the red-tiled floor. "'You're doing a very serious thing, Miss Beechinor. As Mr. Beechinor's solicitor, I should just like to be acquaint with the real reasons for this conduct.' "'I've told you,' she had a slightly quizzical look. "'Now, as to Mark,' the lawyer continued blandly, "'Mr. Beechinor explained the whole circumstances to me. "'Mark as good as defied his brother.' "'That's nothing to do with it.' "'By the way, it appears that Mark is practically engaged to be married. "'May I ask if the lady is yourself?' "'She hesitated. "'If so,' he proceeded, I may tell ye informally that I admire the pluck of ye, but nevertheless that will has got to be executed. The young lady is a Miss Meller of Hanbridge. I'm going to fetch my clerk, he said shortly. I can see you're an obstinate and unfathomable woman. I'll be back in half an hour. When he had departed, she bolted the front door top and bottom and went upstairs to the dying man. Nearly an hour elapsed before she heard a knock. Mr. Baines had had to arouse his clerk from sleep. Instead of going down to the front door, Mary threw up the bedroom window and looked out. It was a mild but starless night. Trafalgar Road was silent save for the steam car, which, with its load of revellers returning from Hambridge, that centre of gaiety, slipped rumbling down the hill towards Bursley. "'What do you want, disturbing a respectable house at this time of night?' she called in a loud whisper when the car had passed. "'The door's bolted, and I can't come down. You must come in the morning.' "'Miss Beechinor, ye will let us in. I charge thee.' "'It's useless, Mr. Baines.' "'I'll break the door down. I am a strong man and a determined. Ye are carrying things too far.' In another moment the two men heard the creak of the bolts. Mary stood before them, vaguely discernible, but a forbidding figure. "'If you must, come upstairs,' she said coldly. "'Stay here in the passage, Arthur,' said Mr. Baines. "'I'll call ye when I want ye.' And he followed Mary up the stairs. Edward Beechinor lay on his back, and his sunken eyes stared glassily at the ceiling. The skin of his emaciated face, stretched tightly over the protruding bones, had lost all its crimson, and was green, white, yellow. The mouth was wide open. His drawn features wore a terribly sardonic look, a purely physical effect of the disease, but it seemed to the two spectators that this mean and disappointed slave of a miserly habit had, by one superb imaginative effort, realised the full vanity of all human wishes and pretensions. "'Ye can go, I shan't want ye,' said Mr. Baines, returning to the clerk. The lawyer never spoke of that night's business. Why should he? To what end? Mark Beechinor, under the old will, inherited the seven hundred pounds in the house. Miss Meller of Hanbridge is still Miss Meller, her hand not having been formally sought. But Mark, secretary of the Labour Church, is married. Miss Meller, with a quite pardonable air of tolerant superiority, refers to his wife as a strange, timid little creature. She couldn't say bow to a goose. End of chapter 3